0: Central Los Angeles. The windows are open because my apartment doesn't have any air conditioning and it's sweltering already in early May. The sound of traffic filters through the screen on the window. The cursor on my laptop blinks. I pen these immortal words. As technology has created more and more platforms from which cinema can be shown or purchased. Mm. Mm. Digital cinema has become less of an exhibition practice and more of a product. Stop! What are you even saying? What spectacle of a smaller screen? What the hell is that? I was going for intelligent and insightful. Instead, I got... well... Can you read me again? It's like spectacles of spectacles of spectacles. okay. Okay, continue. I don't even understand. Whatever. Let me translate. At some point in the 90s, movies stopped making so much money at movie theaters and started making more money elsewhere. TV, in-flight movies, and of course, DVDs. DVDs were a big deal. Think about it, instead of just seeing a movie, you bought one. Now, owning a movie is a whole different ball of wax. You can pause it whenever you want. You can turn the volume down, skip ahead to the next scene, and no one will even care if you talk during the movie. If you're a filmmaker, you're rightfully kind of pissed. You make an action movie with insane explosions. Get down! Get down now! Crazy car chases. Ah! And a bumping soundtrack in some kind of surround sound format no one really understands. I mean, maybe nobody understands it, but they feel it. They feel it when the seats shake from your awesome sound design. Only thing is, most people aren't seeing it in a theater anymore. I mean, they're watching it at home. On crappy speakers attached to the back of their television set. Or on an airplane. Through those cheap, disposable headsets they hand out at the beginning of the flight. That larger than life car chase. That epic million dollar explosion. They're looking at it on the screen the size of your average breakfast pancake. Kind of ruins the whole action part of an action movie, you know? So if you're a smart filmmaker, you adapt. You figure out a way to create that same feeling, that same seat shaking boom, even when you're watching on a small screen with bad speakers. And that, that's what I'm trying to say in my paper emphasis on trying because in reality so, why are you being
1: like so i like how the first sentence i really liked something created can you just say this derived because of this results is your a
0: whole paper like this yes susie kim and i work side by side making movies together not only are we film collaborators but we're best buddies too which means she knows pretty much all of my flaws and all of my shortcomings in great detail and if I ask she'll actually tell me.
1: Basically it's like you could have said it like this
0: but like why are you saying it like this? I have to read it three
1: times to really understand it but like I feel like why well, I have to spend three times to understand a simple concept. I don't think you're talking about complicated stuff. I feel like you're being egoistic about how I want to show off my writing you know rather than really trying to get the point across.
0: Basically, I sound like an arrogant asshole.
1: Yeah, exactly. I feel like, what are you saying? I can't get over the part what, you know, you're so douchey. (laughs) I'm like, I'm so douchey, I don't even want to like this
0: paper. My point in this paper was a pretty good one. Today's filmmakers are almost guaranteed their films will be seen on a small screen. Jeff King argues in spectacle narrative and the spectacular Hollywood. But it doesn't even really matter what I'm saying because you can't understand it. I'm so busy trying to impress you with how smart I sound that you can't even follow my train of thought. But when I tell you in conversation, it makes sense. So now I've got to ask, why don't people write like they talk? is a podcast that celebrates exceptionalism, not as a thing that distinguishes notable figures of history textbooks from our own times, but as an idea achievable right now. This storytelling series parallels the lives of our heroes with the ups and downs of our own lives so that we can learn from the past, live better lives in the present, and achieve our most lofty goals in the future. you agree that heroism is not about perfection, but trial and error, Hero and Me might be the podcast for you. If you think history is fun, but also useful, Hero and Me might be the podcast for you. And finally, if you're looking for inspiration, but are sick of reading self-help books that all say the same things, the Hero and Me podcast was made just for you. In which case, you can find us at brianacrandall.com slash heroandme and subscribe to our mailing list. We will send you the episodes as they come out, along with more stories, anecdotes, and commentary about the heroes we cover. Hero and Me is a Brian A. Crandall production. That's Brian with an I, A is in the letter A, and Crandall with two L's, not one. Thank you for listening, and now back to Mark and Me episode one, Big Talk. So why don't people write like they talk? I am not the first person to ask this question. A hundred years ago, there was another dude who was asking the same thing. Most Americans imagine him kind of like the KFC Colonel with flyaway white hair and a linen suit, but whenever I imagine him, I picture someone younger, good looking, with a crooked smile like a Star-Lord or Jack Colton, a lovable rogue. His name was Mark Twain. Well, his name wasn't actually Mark Twain, it was Samuel Langham Clemens and Mark Twain was just the name he decided to call himself, but still, the dude is a myth, a legend. Often considered one of the greatest American authors, Mark Twain wrote a number of famous classics. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, for example, is still on U.S. reading lists, and famous actors like Elijah Wood played Huck in one of the novel's many film adaptations. Tom Sawyer's antics are famous around the world, as chronicled in the countum Four of Twain's novels he appears in. Then there were the numerous articles for newspapers that made Twain into the most famous humorist of the day, including the ones he sent back from trips in Europe, which eventually became the basis for his first big hit, The Innocents Abroad. After that, it was hit after hit, lecture tour after lecture tour, article after article. The thing was, Mark Twain didn't just write like he talked. He figured out how to write like other people talk. Huckleberry Finn has got something close to two dozen regional dialects in it. I'm no Mark Twain expert, I'm just impressed by any man who can explain himself twenty-four different ways. I can't even get it right one way.
2: All a frog wants is educating, and he can do most anything.
0: To really get an appreciation for it, you have to go back to some of Twain's older works, like Jim Smiley and his Jumpin' Frog, one of the first short stories that put Twain on the map. It's one of those stories you can read, but it's really best heard. Like in the 1985 Claymation, The Adventures of Mark Twain.
2: So he never done nothing for three months. Set in his backyard and learn that frog to jump. And you bet he did learn him too.
1: All right, Daniel. Let's just see how far you can go.
2: I
0: discovered Mark Twain like most kids do. The Adventures of Tom Sawyer showed up on my middle school reading list. I think we even had a special Tom Sawyer day, like a school festival where we all went barefoot and played hooky in our normal classes, like Huck did. It wasn't until I was older that I actually got to liking Twain. His first big hits were travel books. The Innocence Abroad was a particularly interesting mix of first-hand account and some obviously fictional anecdotes. There's a bit in there that sent me straight back to my own trip through Europe with my big sister Erin. Both of us were still in college, but we spent a summer in Western Europe, buying gloves we should not have and getting irritated by travel guides, just like Twain and his buddies did practically a century beforehand. I went back and looked through my diaries from that Europe trip, and they're not nearly so easy to read, even though some of our antics are equally funny. Upon meeting other hostel-goers, we have pretended that we speak another language so that we can avoid conversation with them. Mostly we were just hemming and hawing and yaya-yaing at each other, But we needed a language that we could believably speak, that would also be so obscure no one else at the hostel would likely speak it. Aaron had the brilliant idea of settling on Afrikaans. So now, to the other tourists in Rome at least, we are from South Africa. I guess I liked the idea of being a bit of a trickster, even back then. My favorite picture from that trip is outside the train station in Venice. My big sister Erin and I are standing next to each other, smiling, but we forgot to zoom out, so all you can see is one of each of our googly eyes. There's a story about Twain. I'm not sure if it's true, or if it's the truth stretched a little for effect, or if it's one of those made-up things he tells about himself to get a laugh. I want to believe it's true though, so I pretend it is. Even Twain admits,
2: When I go to church, I go for a good rest and a quiet nap.
0: But on one occasion, Mark Twain sat through the whole sermon. He gave it his full, undivided attention. At the end of the service, Twain walks up to the pastor and tells him,
2: I have a book at home that has every word of your sermon in it.
0: Now the pastor was surprised. He writes all his sermons himself, but now Twain had him worried. Did he read the sermon somewhere and forget? Did he rip off some poor fellow without meaning to? He asks Twain to send him the book. Twain does. Twain sends him a dictionary. Luckily, that one paper I wrote isn't my only paper. Eventually, I had to work on a much bigger and longer one, a graduate thesis. I'm still no Mark Twain, but I'll try and explain this one as clear as I can. There are over 200 different languages in the world, but only eight of them are what are called major languages. Stuff like English or Korean or Portuguese. A lot of people speak those languages. But what about those other 192 some odd languages? So few people speak them, and even fewer people bother to write novels or make movies in those languages. So books and movies get imported from other places. It's not really that big of a deal. Except, it kinda is. Because apparently, when you don't write or film things in a local language, you're telling the world that this region isn't important enough for movies or books. Whether you mean to or not, that's what you're saying. And the locals, mean to or not, they come to believe it. It basically undermines a whole culture. A minor language is an extreme example. It happens to local regions too. Think Jeju Islanders in Korea, or Appalachians in the US South. It's important, y'all. So what did I do about it? I wrote a dense academic paper about it. I'm pretty sure only the professors on my thesis defense committee will read. It will quietly gather dust in the school archives until somebody throws it out. And what did Mark Twain do about it? He made those people, those places, unforgettable. He made them immortal literature. And then he went on tour and introduced them to even more people. No, really. I'm not exaggerating here. Twain made his living by touring the country like a modern day stand up comedian would making fun of the weather in New England, telling stories about that time a cute stork looked convinced him to buy a pair of blue gloves that didn't exactly fit, and spinning out a tiny observation about blue jays into a whole world where birds talk and some of them are ashamed of their bad grammar. He takes something tiny and real and he turns it into something big and fantastic. These little moments that happen in life, they become whole punchlines of stories. They're at the same time completely over-the-top exaggerations, but also based on something so true and so real, you recognize it immediately. And like any good comic, Twain knows it's all in the delivery. Mark Twain listened to all the complicated flowery words of the writers of the age. I mean, this was the era of the American literary greats, Walt Whitman, Herman Melville, Emily Dickinson. Beautiful writing. But for Mark Twain, that kind of language doesn't really describe the birds he knows. To him, they sounded like me in my term paper. For example.
2: Those who have passed the winter in the country are sensible of the delightful influences that accompany the earliest indications of spring. And of these, none are more delightful than the first notes of the birds. There is one modest little sad colored bird, much resembling a wren, which came about the house just on the skirts of winter, when not a blade of grass was to be seen, and when a few prematurely warm days had given a flattering foretaste of soft weather.
0: That's Washington Irving talking about birdsong. And here, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow on the subject.
2: But when the morning broke, and the green woods were alive with birds, with what a clear and ravishing sweetness sung the plaintive thrush. I love to hear its delicate rich voice chanting through all the gloomy day when loud amid the trees is dropping the big rain and gray mists wrap the hills. For I, the sweeter its song is when the day is sad and dark.
0: And of course...
2: David shut his sensitive ears, and even Hayward, apprised as he was of the nature of the cry, looked upward in quest of the bird, as the cawing of a crow rang in the air about them.
0: That's James Fenimore Cooper. If Mark Twain wasn't so hideously opposed to the romantic writing style of James Fenimore Cooper, they might have been friends. Instead, they became enemies. Cooper was the heavyweight. He wrote several important American novels, including The Spy, which is often considered the first great historical American novel, and The Last of the Mohicans, which gained a second wave of popularity in the 90s as a big Hollywood epic. He blended his naval background with historic events, pilfering winning formulas from popular authors of the time. In fact, his first big hit, The Pilot, was a bald-faced attempt to one-up Sir Walter Scott's The Pirate. He succeeded. What more do you expect from a man whose very first novel ever was an admitted imitation of a Jane Austen romance? It wasn't Cooper's lack of originality that drove Mark Twain mad. It was his wordy, flowery, romantic writing.
2: David shut his sensitive ears, and even Hayward, apprised as he was of the nature of the cry, looked upward in quest of the bird as the calling of a crow rang in the air about them.
0: Compare that description to Twain's experience with birdsong
2: noticed a good deal. And there's no bird or cow or anything that uses as good a grammar as a blue jay. You may say a cat uses good grammar. Well, a cat does, but you let a cat get excited once, you let a cat get to pulling fur with another cat on a shed, nights, and you'll hear grammar that will give you the lockjaw. Ignorant people think it's the noise which fighting cats make that's so aggravating, but it ain't so. It's the sickening grammar they use. Now, I've never heard a Jay use bad grammar, but very seldom, and when they do, they are as ashamed as a human. They shut right down and leave.
0: Twain's birds don't sing. They curse. They mess up their grammar. They feel shame. And Twain, he doesn't write like he's writing. He writes like he's talking. Sure, some of it's just for flavor, a little local slang here and there for color, but a lot of it is about something more than that. Mark, He didn't just do it to make you laugh, or to make himself wealthy and famous, although he did all that. He also used it as a way to bring language back to the people, to fight back against all that hard-to-understand writing from his peers. From James Fenimore Cooper.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the literary fight night of the century. Tonight is the famous and unforgettable showdown between two heavy hitters going pen to pen in the ultimate test of literary genius. In one corner, we have the reigning champion. He's the king of the romantics, the last of the Mohicans. It's the one, the only, James Fenimore Cooper. In the other corner, rising to the challenge, is the underdog, Captain of the Steamboatmen, Modernist Maverick, please welcome Mark Twain! All right, first round is pros. Twain takes a swing at Deerslayer. Ooh, and it lands. Twain's accusing Cooper's character in Deerslayer of being inconsistent in the way they speak. Twain's got a good point there. They start out sounding like a $7 friendship's offering, only to wind up like a minstrel in the end. Twain swings at the Pathfinder and leather-stocking tails with a one-two combination. Cooper is just taking a beating. It looks like he's so punch-drunk he can't speak straight. Cooper's using a word, second cousin, not the word he needs. And his characters are coming close to what they want to say without ever actually saying it. Is that from the knockout, or was he always struggling to speak plainly? It appears that's always been the case. Twain is not letting up. Look, now he's throwing an accusation of poor grammar and speaking in a roundabout style. It's now 19, 19 literary offenses. Twain is dominating. And Cooper appears to be down for the count. It's a total knockout.
0: Twain really did take a series of well-aimed punches at James Fenimore Cooper. He wrote a list of so-called Fenimore Cooper's literary offenses. It was brutal. Listen to this.
2: In one place, in Deerslayer, and in the restricted space of two-thirds of a page, Cooper has scored 114 offenses against literary art out of a possible 115. It breaks the record. Burn.
0: The way Twain saw it, Cooper and his flowery, verbose writing was getting in the way of itself. It was pretentious, it was inaccessible. In a word, it was bad. Like my term paper. You understand the point of my paper now, right? What I was trying yeah. to say. What was I trying to say? If you were gonna rewrite it, how would you say it now? Um,
1: traditional cinema has changed because of how people consume cinema. Why do I have to use cinema? <laughs> Man, I took
0: like seven sentences to say You just said it in one. <laughs> no. We draft a newsletter twice a week. Is my writing still this bad?
1: Now you relaxed more in your writing, which is very different. So I think the examples are more floral rather than the words you use are floral. That's like a floral writing where like every, I feel like it's like a staccato everywhere. I want to make every word count. And now, in your writing, I feel like your your examples and anecdotes are more floral itself. It means the emphasis is here and then there's less emphasis in there, so it's like now it's more clear. I don't think it has to be complicated. I don't think it does. I'll I'll be the worst writer ever. (laughs) Why? Because it will be very simple. I like this! So I made this! Thank you! The more complicated
0: your point, the more simple language you should be using. I do think so. There's the historical angle, sure, but if you're asking why Mark Twain is still on most middle school reading lists, I think that's the real reason. Writing like you speak, it's hard. Being understood is even harder. And perhaps hardest of all is having something to say. That's why Mark Twain's writing is so important, and it's the kind of words I try my best to write. This was episode one of Mark and Me, Big Talk. If you liked what you just listened to and want to receive more stories about our heroes you can't find anywhere else, subscribe to the Hero and Me podcast newsletter at brianacrandall.com slash heroandme. Hero and Me is a Brian A. Crandall production. That's Brian with an I, A as in the letter A, and Crandall with two L's, not one. Stay tuned next month for episode two of Mark and Me, Out of Depth.